Well, hey, everyone, and welcome to this week's episode of The Boundless Show. Lisa Anderson here with you, a little preview of what is to come. For our inbox, we have a listener who has a friend who is gay, but our listener has avoided the homosexuality is a sin conversation you know, understandably, but feels like in that she's being dishonest about her convictions and so wants some thoughts on how to move forward in the friendship. One of our counselors is going to give some advice there. And then for our culture segment, Pastor Evan Riedahl is back with us to discuss what it means to find true love in life. You might actually be surprised by this conversation so uh, and hopefully encouraged. So whether you are in a dating relationship or not, you will benefit from this and that is coming up later. Well, here we are for our roundtable, and uh, today is going to be a practical conversation with a few fun folks on cooking. I have to bring in people on this because I am not an expert chef or baker or anything, but I do see the value of cooking, um, specifically cooking, you know, when you're single, if you live alone or if you have roommates or whatever, what does this actually look like? And so I want to welcome Paige, Jess, and Eric. Hey, guys. Hello. Hello. Welcome. All right. Good to have you. Okay. So first of all, let's just talk about kind of generally where we are in the cooking sphere. I already said, I showed my hand. I can follow, here's my deal. I can follow recipes. I actually like being healthy and I like being thrifty. So I see, I'm not someone that's like, oh my goodness, I'm going to eat out every meal of my life. Don't like it. Don't like it when I have to do that. So I will cook, but I am not one of these people that is like, randomly making dishes that I pick five spices out of my cupboard and they come together amazingly. I cannot do that. I don't have creativity in that direction. So um, let's all get kind of the vibe of where we all are in the cooking sphere. Paige, why don't you begin? Yeah, I wanted to cook since I was eight or nine. I thought I would go into culinary arts. Uh, I ended up studying family and consumer science in college, which is a fancy name for home economics. So I took some food science classes, some nutrition classes. uh, And so I enjoy cooking. I'm with you to a certain extent. I don't just go create things from scratch, but I, I enjoy the science of it and thinking through all the benefits. Okay, you are literally the only person that I've known that has done family and consumer science, which I didn't even know still existed. Hardly, like, hardly I, exists. <laughs> yeah, I did like a class on that and it just about ended my, I mean, between sewing an apron and learning how to, I don't even know what else I did. But yeah, I was not, again, naturally inclined. All right, Jess. I actually, I love baking probably more because of the science. It's like very exact what you have to add and what you cannot add extra of. Um, but I like, I like cooking. I'm again, I can follow a recipe and like, you know, taste it, see if it needs more of like a little something, but it's about as fancy as I like to get. Okay. All right, Eric. Well, uh, I can follow recipes. I tweak them often to my own preferences. I've occasionally built them from scratch. Never had any culinary training, uh, except for like a knife skills class that I took that was one night, although that was money well spent. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, but uh, that's that's about my expertise. Okay. Well, what, um, like, how do you guys feel as far as being single and needing to cook? Like, if you looked at your average week, like, what does a men- menu this is like full disclosure follow what does a menu look like for you I feel like I make like two solid things a week and the rest of the time is like scavenging something out of my fridge and or eating out and then I say that I cooked because I remember vaguely doing something but I don't know how about you guys do you plan things or what I cook once on the weekends Uh, I grew up in a big family so a lot of the recipes I like feed 
far more people than me. So then when I cook that, I can eat it all week, which helps when I have church activities or social things in the evening. I really don't have time to cook in between work and whatever else is happening. Then I have the the homemade stuff ready to go. And I'm, I don't have the need to eat new things every night. I know some people just crave that, but I can eat one thing for a week and be good. Yeah, I'm pretty much in the same boat. I grew up in a large family. And so when I cooked growing up, it was cooking for five to six people at a time. And I never really got out of that (laughs) after after school. It's hard. (laughs) So I cook for six people at a time and then eat the same thing all week long. Like, let's not discount like the ease of just reheating things mm-hmm. at night. It's just, it's easy. And yeah, again, I don't mind eating the same thing for a week. Some people do. Yeah. I'm that, not one of them. That's good. That actually it requires a bunch of foresight. You know, I'm planning to be like, okay, I'm going to set aside some time and, and do that. So it also like makes the grocery bill a lot smaller when you only cook one meal a week. Yeah. Okay. And just parse it out. Okay. Um, Eric, are you a little more creative in your cooking or what does it look like for you as far as a timetable of how you cook? Well, I don't know if there's much of a rhyme or a reason. Uh, I do like to try new things from time to time to expand my repertoire. Uh, but I, like uh, Jess, I like to cook in bulk sometimes. That's actually why I started learning how to make a variety of different soups. Mm-hmm. Because if you go through the trouble to do that, it doesn't take a whole lot more trouble to make a whole lot more. Mm-hmm. And then I can just freeze a bunch of it, have about six or eight different types in the freezer, especially during the colder months. It's just a great way to have meals ready to go without having to get takeout all the time. Yeah. It is nice, though, to be able to expand on other things. And so I've, in more recent years, tried to learn how to make a variety of things that are not soup. Yeah. Okay. Well, that <laughs> that's good. Because, okay, I, now that your whole, like, prepping ahead of time and, like, making things that are freezable like soups is kind of a partial answer to my next question. And that is how you get around the whole waste issue as a single person. Because here's what I do. I go and buy stuff. And then I have all these aspirations for using it, but it's like four crowns of broccoli. And I'm like, okay, what am I going to do with that? Because, you know, I'm gonna, I tell myself I'm going to roast this in like garlic and olive oil and stuff. And I never get around to it. And then come midweek, I'm throwing that in my trash because I just let it sit there and stuff. So what's the how to be most efficient in your cooking? What does that look like? Are there things that you buy more than other things to keep down the, the waste in that sense? So I'm actually glad that you asked this question because it's a little bit of conviction for me Mm -hmm. because I used to be better at this than I was. (laughs) Okay. So what I used to do, and I should start doing it again in light of your question, is I have been good at times about uh, creating monthly budgets and having different categories for things. I use my own Excel sheets to do that, though, and I would have a separate worksheet for... Uh, keeping a list of food items that I end up throwing out. And so at the end of the month, I was able to look at that and be like, oh, I threw this out, I threw that out. And just being able to have a log of that. And after I did that for a few months, the log seemed like it got smaller. It's like I was able to watch that better. But uh, it's been a few years since I've done that, so I need to start doing that again. Yeah, well, that's good. See, that's why I don't log it, because then I don't have to be depressed about how much I'm throwing (laughs) out. I just try to forget it. But, okay, how about you two? So I know um, a lot of European countries do this thing. I know a lot of French people especially do this thing where, like, they just get the ingredients for dinner that night, and they just make what they have they need that night. And so that's kind of, like, something I've tried to adopt when I do my grocery shopping, I'm like, okay, what am I going to make tonight and maybe tomorrow night and buy just what I need to do that and then make it. And again, because I make in bulk, <laughs> yeah. it then lasts me for, you know, a week, week and a half. 
Okay, but just I feel like that's a lot more attainable if you're like Belle in Beauty and the Beast, where you're like running along the cobblestones in a little to Parisian the bakery. bakery. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm like, for me to even navigate the parking lot of my local grocery store, I have to just pray beforehand and just offer it up to the Lord because I can't even stand if I'm going to go after work. I can't even deal with it, the crowds and the insanity. But I do understand that is. I mean, I know people who do that, and it totally works for them. So that is a good point, but. Yeah, I think for the single person, that wall of uh, pre-prepared produce is your friend. It went against everything in me. It felt lazy and expensive. But really, you know, when you're making the soup and you buy the little tub of pre-chopped carrots and onions and celery all together, if you try to buy those separately, Mm -hmm. you are going to have enough soup for 30 people. Um, So that's something I've done is had to say, okay, I'll do the the simple option that's maybe a little more money, but less work and less waste in the end too. Yeah, that's good. You know, actually to that point, that made me think of actually one thing that I do well (laughs) of the other things I don't do well. I'm pretty big on buying because again, I go to, I have a couple single friends that we've gone in on a Costco membership, you know, so we go, I will buy their veggie trays and then you could use that for anything. You could put those in soups. They're already prepared. Sometimes I just eat the stuff raw. But I notice that, yeah, if it is chopped or I have to, my weekend day will be like chopping vegetables. Because every night if I come home and I'm just facing chopping, that's not <laughs> going to happen. So, um, but either having it pre-chopped or pre-packaged or I put it in little baggies and I know what I'm going to use for what, that's kind of a good hack um, that I've picked up as well. So, any other um, particular hacks or things that are just like your go-to items? Like say that you come home and you have to be somewhere in like less than an hour and you know that you want to make something kind of healthy, but you have to do it fast. What are you going to eat? I love having a crock pot for that very reason. Oh, it's so easy. Point. Like on the weekends, you just kind of like make the giant bag with everything you need to dump in the crock pot that morning. That morning, wake up, dump it in, let it go. By the time you come home, it's cooked. You just got to stir it up and eat it. Mm -hmm. That's good. Yeah. The crock pot is an awesome thing. Scrambled eggs are also always a great choice. Usually most people have those around and it takes five minutes if you're really in a rush. That is a very good one. Yep. Frankly, if I'm in a hurry, I'd either reheat something or just eat a snack or just not eat rather than try to figure out cooking something right on the fly. Oh, okay. Okay. Yeah. I mean, that's, that's good. Well, and, and obviously that again speaks to if you have stuff like leftovers that you have packaged up, that's always a great thing to, to have. I would say, um, man. Okay. So one thing I always, this is kind of trends towards more snacky, but like if I have something like, um, pita and hummus or something, that's something I'll make, or I'll make what I kind of like a plate, like a Mediterranean plate where I'll put a little, if I have some leftover chicken, like put a little bit of that there and maybe some Kalamata olives and some hummus and some crackers or something like that, a Cuba cheese or something and make my own little plate. That's kind of a fun thing, a fun thing to do. So, um, okay. Is there any kind of, I mean, maybe Paige, you better start out speaking to this because you literally like studied this. What are actual like skills around cooking that you think people are lacking in and or need to develop or things that just really were game changers for you guys? Hmm. I think a big part of learning to cook and learning to like to cook is uh, figuring out what spices you like and then learning how to use them. Uh, I think a, a lot of people 
in my age demographic had said has said that oh, vegetables, cooked vegetables were horrible when we were kids, but that's because our moms were steaming them. Mm-hmm. And now everybody's discovered roasting. Them, right? Like straight up boiling. Gross. <laughs> yep. Yeah. But now everybody's discovered roasting and that mm-hmm. you can put stuff on those vegetables. So find out what you like. Just keep experimenting. Yeah, when you spices make a huge difference yeah, in helping you learn to like food. That's awesome. Mm-hmm. I think the the big thing for me was like being okay with something not turning out the way I thought it was going to, um, you know, follow the directions the first time you make something new. And then, you know, if it doesn't work out, then you kind of know, okay, here's what I need to tweak next time and see what happens the next time. And then if you still don't like it, find a new recipe, but be okay with getting it wrong. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's good. I think those are both great answers. I think also if there's any particular food that a person really likes, especially if it would cost quite a bit to get it at a restaurant, that might be a motivation to learn uh, to improve your culinary skills. For me, I actually went uh, to the Middle East some years back and fell in love with the cuisine there. But I went to, it was when I was in college and I was in a small town where they didn't really have Middle Eastern restaurants. And so if I wanted to enjoy that food back in the states where i was in school i had to learn how to make it myself yeah that's good yeah i'm thinking about it i i mean i think i'll think of a skill here too maybe I, well i guess straight up like learning how to well i was going to say learning how to chop well but that's only because every time i watch movies where like actual chefs are chopping i'm like that seems so easy and amazing but my big takeaway would be have the right tools and having the right tools does not mean having all of the tools so people that buy like small appliances for one task or are all into the latest crazy new gadget probably not you know not necessary but the big ones that i would say is to have a great set of knives so everyone deserves a great set of knives and if you need to ask your parents for that for christmas slash birthday just do it but they should be great i mean they don't have to be like a million dollars but they should be good quality they should be sharpened regularly um, to have those in your arsenal, as well as I would say a great set of mixing bowls. I like the kind that have the tread on the bottom. So my bowl isn't skittering across the kitchen, which I'm prone to make it do a uh, great set of measuring spoons, measuring cups, and then a few of the, the other big utensils, like a good whisk, um, <laughs> a spatula, that kind of stuff is always great to have in your, in your arsenal. Cause if you can't if you can't do something well and do it efficiently, you're, it's probably not going to happen. So I would say that's definitely the case. Um, all right. So kind of one fun thing that I'd like to ask as we finish up here is what um, give everyone like a, a dish that everyone should be able to make or something that you would recommend like people make and why? I don't know. But I think for me, it's fried rice. And, like, it seems so simple, but, like, especially, like, getting the egg done right when you do a fried rice can be difficult. Um, But it's so versatile. You can put kind of anything you want in fried rice. You can put any vegetable. You can put any protein in it and just kind of fry it down, and it comes together quick. Mm -hmm. That's awesome. The first thing that comes to mind is pasta, you know. It comes in every shape and size. You can make your own sauce. You can buy your sauce. You can put meat in it. You can put vegetables. So you can make it how you like. But as as soon as you have the basics of you know boiling some noodles and figuring out your sauce, then you're you have a whole round well-rounded meal. 
That's good. And it's so cost effective. Mm-hmm. Like people, I mean, that's a great thing to, to serve too. When you have people over, you know, anyone that is going to a restaurant and paying 35 bucks for a plate of pasta, you need to just stop. Okay. Because they're making money on you. Okay. Yeah. I'm just saying that, uh, FYI pro tip, but anyway, yeah, that's a great point page. I would say if you know how to do things with uh, beans or legumes, that can be a very affordable thing too. Mm. Lisa, you mentioned hummus. I didn't catch if you make your own hummus or not what. usually. No. Okay. I, I've seen. I've actually seen that though. Like, but then you need a food processor. You got to be all up in that business. So, I mean, that's another tool you have to have. But um, yeah, well, yeah. I, I'd say hummus is, great, is a good one. But yep. other things with legumes too. Yeah. Uh, that uh, it's right on the affordability line there. That's cool. Um, my go-to suggestion lately has been any kind of like what I would term a power bowl. So this kind of comes into the the realm of, of some of the other things we've shared. But I make one that's like a, a beef bulgogi bowl. And I actually got the recipe off of HelloFresh when a friend gave me a subscription. And I just like kept that recipe because I was like, this is so awesome. And it's just, you know, it's going to be some kind of possibly a carb unless you're keto or whatever, some kind of protein, some kind of vegetables, some kind of sauce. And that is it. And you can mix that up again to the to the point of, um, you know, Jess and, and Paige, what they said, the variety, like in a fried rice or in a pasta or whatever, is really limitless to be able to just mix it up and have all different kinds of dishes. And they are healthy and, and you can make it attainable. So awesome. Well, you guys, thank you so much for weighing in on this. I think this is, this is a well, great start. Yeah, a great start for having this conversation. Hopefully... Um, encouraging and inspiring you, the listener, to maybe give a little bit of cooking a try. Start with the eggs. I would <laughs> recommend that. Put some spice in your eggs. Put a little cheese in your eggs. Put a little spinach in your eggs. You can have all kinds of variations there, too. Uh, good thoughts there. But uh, thanks, y'all, and happy cooking. Thank you. folks uh, welcome to today's culture segment and this is kind of a fun one because it is bringing back a friend and former co-worker who used to be here at wait for it adventures and odyssey all of you big fans out there uh evan Riedahl. you said what was your role with adventures and odyssey I was you were the, like marketing weren't you or? yeah no, well it grew into that i started as the audio drama coordinator and it okay. grew into coordinating and then 
basically popping over to Dave Arnold with an idea and him saying yes or no to it. And so marketing okay. became a part of yeah. that. Yeah. Well, craziness. So, well, that was another lifetime because now you are a pastor yep. of New Life Downtown Church here in Colorado Springs, which I have to give a shout out to John Pearden. That is his church. And he's the one hey, that uh, came up with this idea for a culture because... Um, this is gonna. We're gonna talk through a few elements of a sermon that Evan gave uh, at the church probably a couple months ago now, and uh, the title of it was "What Is True Love?" Yeah. Right? How do I how do I find how do true I find love? true love? Okay, which everyone is now like pencils poised because <laughs> they know. Just give me the formula that you're gonna give them a formula, right. and it's gonna be in three weeks or less. Okay, extra credit if you can get it into By two the weeks holidays or less. At the very least, <laughs> we got cuffing season. And we got to make sure that happens. So, okay. But no, this is going to be a a fun conversation. Uh, Like I said, uh, you're still uh, local. You're a a friend here. You have been on The Boundless Show before. And so, um, but you also, I should say, legitimately, uh, you have a degree in pastoral counseling from Denver Seminary. And you even did your undergrad in Bible and theology out at Multnomah, right? Multnomah in Portland, Oregon, before okay. it became super crazy. Will the school's it... great. The city's crazy. That's <laughs> Before the city got crazy. Okay. Well, that's uh, that's good to know. So, okay. Well, we're going to jump right in because let's just put it out there. Okay. So the fact is, Evan, I mean, clearly there was a reason for you doing this sermon. And I should say that your church is, has a huge number of younger adults, many of them single. Absolutely. So yeah. they probably did like mark their calendars for this and were like, what is he going to tell us? What's yeah. he going to solve um, for us? But tell us what in, in thinking this through and realizing what you had to communicate, what do we typically think of when it comes to true love, if we define it? And what would you say, where have we kind of gotten derailed, even within the church from the biblical definition? Yeah. When... We're approaching the the whole sermon series for the summertime was how do I, and then looking at the book of Proverbs to figure out Mm -hmm. how do I go about life well. And if God has created the world with a certain grain to it, let's say, how do I live in such a way where I'm agreeing and and living into the grain of his order Mm -hmm. and asking bigger questions. And so the one that I got to to choose and I took on, on... uh, joyfully was how do I find true love? It's it's something I'm, I'm over marriage ministry within our church, and at the same time, I am friends with lots of folks who are either never married and they're in that twenties, thirties, maybe even forties range, and it just they never somehow got to the point of an I do and a wedding day. Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe they're married and it's great. Maybe they're married and it's actually not great at all and it's 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 painful mm-hmm. uh or maybe they're they're post marriage and i in my day to day life of ministry of pastoring uh and of counseling sit with all of those folks and it, we ask this question as though the ultimate answer is true love marriage in this lifetime and that's the goal of this christian life is is not even to have a good marriage but it's at least to be married because then i'm marked as a as a mature christian mm-hmm. and i can move on from the question that is plaguing me by every family member and yeah. every friend and every you know friend of our parents of when are you going to get married you seem like such a great person yeah. and and in that we presuppose that marriage in this lifetime is the goal and it is the highest goal and 
it's what our Christian life is all bent towards of that's how you know you've arrived. That's how you know you're mature because you're married. Yeah, which is so wild because you and I were even talking before we started taping about how, full disclosure, hello, focus on the family <laughs> that Boundless is a part of, you know, they most people think of them as a marriage and parenting ministry. And so a lot of people are like, what's this Boundless? And why are you talking to these younger adults who maybe aren't married? And I think it has almost approached kind of an idolatrous status in some circles within the church. You know, we think of it as a cultural construct and people have set up marriage because, hello, you're going to get a tax credit and you're going to go buy the house with the white picket fence. But I think where the culture has kind of moved on in this sense, the church is still holding on to this as a structure. Many churches are programmed specifically for marrieds and for families, and that's a big frustration of singles, we know. But... um, But the question, I mean, we could talk about structures, but the real question here is a heart question, because this is the person who, you know, and this is very raw for a lot of single young adults, because coming off of a year of isolation with COVID, a lot of people were pushed online, dating, being like, I cannot go through another season like this by myself. I don't, you know, kind of a lot of introspection going on. You actually asked in the premise of your of your sermon three questions about true love. You said, what is it? How do we get it? And what do we do with it? And I thought that was a, a good few questions to um, to start out talking through because uh, really that last one even, what do we do with it? Why do you think those questions are fundamental to really starting the conversation and allowing people to see where they sit with the idea of real relationships? Yeah, starting with that first one, what is it? I th- I think is important because in the English language, we have the singular word love. So, I love a friend like I love my you know lunch sandwich like I love going and hiking, and and we just use this expression of affection in some way, but with a with a singular word, and so then it becomes unclear and confusing, the longings of our own souls, the needs of our own lives where what do we really need or what is the the highest calling or where potentials found that might be fulfilling of the love that we all long for and so you know in in greek is it phileo is it a friendship love is it eros and it's it's a romantic love is it agape and it's the charity love there there's these four definitions and so it's the question of well what are we actually saying as humans were constructed to be in loving relationships and if we start at least poking at that and going, what is this? How do we define this? We can start recognizing and attuning ourselves to where some of the longings really are. And maybe then where the the solution of those longings or, or where those longings find their fulfillment really come from. And it doesn't always have to be this. We look for romantic love and without that, our lives are unfulfilled or less than. Mm-hmm. And how do we get it is a formulaic thing that... I don't know. I, my my joke is we met in a cafeteria in college. We didn't have smartphones. We didn't have dating apps. We weren't even on Facebook. So social media, we, we were way behind the, the curve with that. Mm-hmm. And so it's this, anything I could say of, well, this is how I did it becomes formulaic for my success. Mm-hmm. But then to prescribe that becomes problematic because somebody could say, well, I tried and it didn't work. And so now what? Now, now your whole formula for it just totally fell apart. Yeah. And, and then that last question of, and what do we do once we get it? If we're understanding the needs within our own souls, maybe ways in which we can go about 
fulfilling those needs. So is friendship a legitimate option? Is it as legitimate of an option as marriage and fulfilling a desire for intimacy to be fully known and fully loved? And in the church, if we can come into an understanding of, yes, because the examples set before us in scriptures uphold the legitimacy of singleness, Mm -hmm. Jesus himself, the fully human one, Mm -hmm. upholds the legitimacy of singleness. And we should be able to say, oh, it's not just, oh, well, it was him because he had to do these things. It should be a stirring in us that says, well, maybe the question and the answers that I've been asking and have been given of you haven't arrived until you're married in this lifetime are falling short of God's actual design for how he's constructed us as humans and what we're longing and where that longing gets fulfilled. Yeah. And that's interesting because, you know, you were alluding to meeting your your wife, Karen, in in college in a cafeteria. And so we want to say, you know, we're not saying that marriage isn't a good thing. There are a lot of great things about marriage. And we know that the Bible begins with marriage. It ends with marriage. That is a good thing. And also relation, I mean, just relationships in general. You talked uh, in the sermon itself through the value of friendship and for for singles. But it seems like whether it's marriage or friendship, people almost see it as an an end point or end goal rather than something to be cultivated, something to be sought after, something to be intentionally, you know, and so talk a little bit about some of the benefits, because we're not saying that people, we're not saying just white knuckle it until you get to heaven, and then God's going to just reward your perseverance, and then you'll have perfect relationship with Christ himself, you know, okay, all true, (laughs) it's wonderful, but we're not supposed to be white knuckling. So talk about the value of real relationships right here on earth. Yeah, with marriage and with singleness, the design that God has given us to be in relationship is inherent from the first. It, It is Adam being lonely and longing but it's also combined with Adam not having a helper suitable for the work that he was called to do. And so when we ask a question of, is the ultimate goal in the design work from Genesis to be married? The answer is no. We get that false notion from our culture and from sometimes the culture within the church today of this is where you're heading towards when actually Adam was called in such a way, and, and we kind of say in, in this these terms, to reflect an invisible God in what he did and in the character with which he did it. And in doing those callings, those those created design callings and living those out, it was required for him to have somebody to come and help him fulfill that calling. Mm-hmm. And, and that could be done within friendship and it can be done within marriage, which is based in friendship. But we we reassess, well, why get married? And is it for my fulfillment and my desire for romance? Or are we remembering ourselves to, it's because I was created to represent God and what I do and my vocation, even if it's in a secular vocation, we approach it in a very sacred way of saying, how do I carry godliness and, and, and the way that he goes about things and the character and the kindness and the nurturing and the love? How do I do that wherever I'm working so that what we do and how we go about doing it in character represent the invisible God on this earth? Mm-hmm. And we need each other for that. Which is fascinating because very few people, I think I think a lot of people are trying to say that, but no one really wants to touch that practically during the week <laughs> because here's the deal. What we really want 
is we want everyone to serve us. We want every circumstance to serve us. We want to be happy. We want to be comfortable. We're constantly trending towards comfort. And, you know, I mean, it's like we know we should read this momentary marriage and the meaning of marriage and all the, you know, Keller Piper and all these guys that are telling us that's not the main thing, you guys. That's not the main purpose. But at the end of the day, we're taking a lot of marching orders from rom-coms and elsewhere of just saying, how is this going to fulfill me? How is this person going to make my life better? And you're saying, in fact, I copied this right out of the um, out of your sermon. You said your marriage and friendships. So this isn't just about marriage. Your marriage and friendships should be about living missionally. Um, and you even drew that the parallel of the fact that missionally now, because ultimately we're not going to be married in heaven. I mean, so there is a there is an eternal purpose and an eternal destination and outworking of all of this. Talk about that a little bit. That's it. Yeah. And we you, you hit on earlier that the Bible begins with marriage and ends with marriage. I think if we're framing that context that the beginning of the marriage was for mission. It's because Adam needed help with something that the end of all of it is marriage as well. But it's not us to one another. It's us to Christ, mm-hmm. us as the church being married to Christ. And we we lose sometimes sight of that or we go, well, that's nice for then. But right now I'm unsatisfied where I am now, mm-hmm. which I think if you're pre-married, if you've never been married before, it's a longing unfulfilled and you you don't really know. But a lot of the people I talk to, that becomes the realized hope through the brokenness and the loss that they face in their relationships of going, thank God it's not about just this marriage in this lifetime because that was so tragic or that was so painful. I still can have hope within the Christian framework because even this marriage, and Tim Keller puts the, the, the success of our marriage is only as good as how much it approximates the self-giving love of Christ, of how much it reflects the way that Christ loves his church is the success of our marriages on earth. And it's because our destination in all of this is us unified with Christ. And I, I make this joke that it, it is the one kind of main scriptural pain point that I don't really like is... When Jesus is speaking in the Gospels and say, and is responding to questions about uh, a man who was married and then, you know, he dies and then the wife marries the brother and, and marries and marries and marries. And who who we should be married to? And he's saying, you're missing the point. Mm-hmm. It, it's it, They won't be married to it. In heaven, you will neither be married nor be given in marriage. You'll be like the angels. And and I, I joke about that because I'm like, I don't like that verse because I love being married to my wife. We mm-hmm. have a ton of fun. We're we're really good at working stuff out and, and growing together and being a source of, of maturity for one another and from one another. But it also means that idol that marriage can become, mm-hmm. that this lifetime, the best that we can do is achieve a marriage status is actually untrue because marriage itself as Paul paints the picture, is described uh, in a way that the church fathers then later on, um, when they're when they're canonizing the scripture and what books are involved, they start adding these layers with what they call sacraments. Uh, Augustine describes a sacrament as an outward sign of an inward grace. The two main sacraments in the church, wh- whether it's Catholic, Protestant, Eastern Orthodox, are baptism. And communion, and these are things Jesus himself participates in, but then gives us. And he says, this sign, it's a sign of the grace of God at work, 
But we also believe there's some mysterious interaction that we have, that when we go into the sign of the waters of baptism, God is really present there with it and us dying to our old selves and being raised to new life in Christ. When we partake of the bread and the cup in communion, it's an outward sign of this real grace that's going on of continued presence and sanctification in God's work in our lives. The seventh and final sacrament that the church added was marriage because they look at Paul's words in Ephesians and say, this is a mystery, but I'm talking about Christ and the church. And they hang their hats on that word mystery and they go, there's something going on that we can't fully describe. And marriage is great. But because it acts as a sacrament, a sign that in the marriage relationship to one another, God is working out grace and applying grace to our lives. But not that we've arrived because now we have this sacrament. We keep on working it out so that our marriages point to something greater. That is Christ and his church, which is where Jesus's words really go at me because it's this, but I want to be married to Karen in heaven. But it should also check my heart to say, but do I want to be married to Jesus even more? Mm -hmm. And is that the trajectory that our marriage is heading? And is it the reflection to the world of what our marriage is becoming? That Christ and his church is the greatest marriage of all. And that's our final destination. Yeah. Well, and I would imagine that also helps you then put your marriage into perspective here on earth. Because again, as in any relationship, we have to hold it loosely for what God's purposes are. And it's like, you can't say that, you know, were Karen taken away from you, you would no longer be able to serve Christ. You'd no longer be able to survive. You'd no longer. And any of us could say that about a great friendship or a family member or whatever. But we want to put, again, with our own finite minds, we want to make a spreadsheet. We want to put a timeline on stuff. We want God to put his stamp of approval on it and everything's just going to chill and be awesome. You actually tell a story. I'd love you to just kind of touch on this a little bit um, about your son, William, in your sermon, yeah. um, who's now six. six. Is that right? Yeah, six years six. old. Um, another unexpected story that you Absolutely. had to say, God, what do you have here for us? Talk a little bit about that yeah. and how, again, looking at the temporal and what we see here on earth um, so pales in comparison to what we have to look forward to. That's it. Yeah. So our son, William, our firstborn, perfectly normal pregnancy. And at 39 weeks and two days, he stopped fetal movement. And we go through all of the calls and then go into the hospital and they monitor him and then go to emergency C-section. And then he's in the NICU and they put him in a coma. And it was just the bomb went off and we had no idea what was going on. And we're in crisis mode. And in that space, uh, he had, you know, we had found out they did his measurements. He had lost 80% of his red blood cell count through something called fetal maternal hemorrhaging. So his, his blood was hemorrhaging out from, you know, kind of reverse umbilical cord flow and being absorbed into my wife's system. And so he's there with massive blood loss, which then the blood carries oxygen. So organ damage, brain damage, we didn't really know where he was at. And the doctors came to us with the biggest question I think that we've ever practically faced of he's stable. He's in a coma. We've induced that on him later this week. He's with this breathing tube. Well, we're going to see if he can breathe on his own. And you as parents might have a choice that if we take it out and he can't breathe on his own, you can choose to not put it back in and just let him go. Mm. And the weight of that became overwhelming to us. And how how do we as humans ever get to decide life and death? Mm. 
in that sort of context, especially with our own, our own children at day, you know, two of being alive and being a parent then. And I, I called in some mentors, elder friends who had walked with us up to that point and were absolutely necessary in that crisis moment. And they came to the hospital and we were processing this. And what they did was impart to us this kind of eternal perspective and this eternal wisdom within that of even if William dies, he is still going to live. And so whether with you as his earthly father or with his heavenly father, he will live and we as Christians have that hope. So take this burden off of your own self and surrender it to the Lord. And what that does for us in William's context, but then I, I think we can apply it within our marital context or, or, or our singleness, is we often think in terms of I have eternal life, but we don't make the mental shift to now I'm living on an eternal time frame, mm-hmm. a lifespan. I have eternal life but I'm not living on an eternal timeline. So what do we do with that piece of it and saying, well, I have eternal life. So what does that mean? Well, I'll do what culturally is pressured in this lifetime and then there'll be a reset and I'm going into the next lifetime. When actually the whole point of eternal life being given to us is to start living into eternity. And so being driven by it and living into it and living like we've, we actually have obtained this now, which means for our relationships, when we think that the the Christian trophy of this lifetime is our marriages and you know the trophy is a wedding ring and that's we've arrived as victors, actually, if we're switching over to the mindset of an eternal life and living that in this timeline, our trophy is Christ. Our our our, our what we're gaining the victor's reward is Him. And we need to start remembering that in this lifetime because then subsequently what it does is completely dignifies singleness. Mm -hmm. Not that you should be single and just white knuckle it, but you should be single because you still have a calling and Christ is your reward. And you can live into that with hope that that's where we're going. And if you're married, great. But how well is your marriage refining you? Is it becoming a sacrament that matures you into reflecting Christ's likeness to the world? And unless we switch to that missional mindset because we're driven by eternity in that space, we're, we're, we're still living in the temporal. And that becomes that danger of, and what does this world tell us? What does the rom-com tell us? Yeah. It pokes at a heartstring that says, oh, yeah, I do want that. So this must, that must be what it's all about. And Christ is saying, go bigger. Lift yeah. your eyes up. See see eternity in all of this and yeah. then bring eternity into the here and now. Yeah, which is I think is so great because as you were just talking, I was thinking of this and saying to myself, you know, at its at its core then, and this is where the playing field is kind of leveled, really the only relationship that we need like we need air is with Jesus Christ. Mm. Everything else is a gift. A yeah. marriage is a gift. Absolutely. Friendships are a gift. Our families are gifts. Yeah. All of that. But when we stand before the Lord, we're going to be doing that as individuals. And that is, you know, our relationship. And like you said, it better be starting now for y'all. Hello. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Wherever you are, because you're already living in eternity. Yeah. And it. my, you know, Evan, your marriage isn't the biggest thing about you. My singleness isn't the biggest thing about me. That's and right. I think that's so encouraging for folks who feel like they're not living out the script that's that right. they thought they would have. And so I just think it's important for yeah. perspective in that. That's it. And if Christ is the heir and it's the one thing we need and then everything else is a gift, 
we both are positioned to receive it with gratitude and say, this is so good. But then also whether you're single or married, you take on the mindset of a a gift according to the Christian faith. Mm -hmm. Because in Christianity, when the gift is given, Mm -hmm. it's not for you to just keep and consume. The Christian gift is for the sake of others, Mm -hmm. to to use the gifts that God has given you for the sake of of others in, in blessing and edification and generosity. And so then it, this, that question of, well, my gift of singleness or my gift of marriage, am I keeping and consuming it or am I investing and using it for the sake of others and the world? Yeah, absolutely. Well, as we finish here, um, I want to point y'all to two things. One is uh, we've been referencing this sermon that Evan gave, so I want to let you know that we are linking to that at Boundless.org. So just go to Boundless.org, search for 709, that's this week's episode, and you'll see the link there. And also linked is going to be one of our recent articles titled The Heaven We Can't Wait For by John Greco. And it talks a little bit more about what Evan and I have just been saying about this continuum of eternity and the plan that God has for us. And you may think like, oh, I'm just waiting for heaven. Or you may be too tied to earth or you may be somewhere in between. (laughs) But it just really kind of paints the picture, the the lines between both of those and makes it uh, something that we can be hopeful for and also grounded in where we are. So, Evan, thanks so much for joining us. Always a pleasure. Awesome. I will trust in Jesus' power by this power. Folks, we are finishing out the show and we open up our inbox as we always do. And we love it when we can pull great experts in to answer your questions. And so this week, we have got one of our licensed professional counselors, Wendy here. Wendy, thank you so much for joining us. Glad to be here. Super. Okay, well, let me go ahead and read um, the question and then I'm going to let you just go ahead and and, uh, talk to the listener and and give your answer. So um, our friend says, I have a friend who's a lesbian and when I first met her, my relationship with God was not the strongest. Recently, my relationship with God has gotten stronger. That being said, he's been laying it on my heart to talk to my friend about homosexuality and I don't know how to address this situation. Previously, I pretended to be okay with it. I'm not following Christ if I'm just telling her what she wants to hear. So how do I address this situation after six months of friendship and basically lying to her about how I feel? Well, I am reminded of the famous and wise words of Timon and Pumbaa (laughs) from the movie Lion King. Uh, After that great conversation, the bottom line conclusion was sometimes you got to put the past behind you. (laughs) And that's true in some sense here. Um, taking those emotions before the, having this conversation, taking those emotions and really bringing them to God, uh, the fear, the uh, guilt or shame that sh- this person might be feeling, um, really letting God care for her heart. Because um, sometimes we 
if we don't do that, then it's like bringing this container of emotions into the conversation, put it in the table between us, and everything we talk about is filtered through some sort of mix of emotions. Mm -hmm. And that tends to make the conversation even more awkward. Mm -hmm. We have the most wonderful model of communication in Jesus. All those stories in the Bible about how he communicated with random people on the street, people that disagreed with him deeply, he was just a master. And so I kind of pull from that um, in answering this question. So Jesus did just what we talked about. He prepared his heart. Uh, Every day he went to the Father. Every day he took all of his emotions before the Father and allowed him to care for them. But then... As he began to talk with those around him, he he approached it like a student with curious questions. And so that kind of open-ended questioning is really important. Um, kind of knowing what is my goal here is to balance truth right along with love and compassion. And Jesus was so good at that. Um, so maybe beginning the conversation with just saying, hey, I've got something on my heart. I'd love to talk about it. Uh, Are you up for that? Let's get a cup of coffee. Mm -hmm. And then once together, beginning the conversation with something along the lines of, you know, as a lesbian, I am wondering what your experiences with Christians have been. Um, I have really been growing in my faith and learning a lot, and I'd like to be a good example. So it's really not coming into this conversation with, you know, guns ablaze, as it were, but coming in from that posture of curiosity, and that creates emotional safety, which is a beautiful thing. Uh, Another thing about Jesus is that he always saw a person before the sin, So, you know, being able to look at this friend and see the wonderful, normal person that they are first before you see this, what could be a barrier between you. Finally, uh, Jesus was never responsible for the outcome. He never took that responsibility. So when he spoke, he spoke firm truth. He did it with love and compassion. And the outcome was up to the person who was listening. And so that same kind of concept would be important. Some people followed Jesus, dropped everything. Some left sad and some were angry. And we can't take the responsibility for the outcome. So bottom line, too, is if God asks you to do something, he's going to equip you to do it. Yeah, that's such a great point. And and it is such a great point that you made to say, you know, this isn't negating the personhood of your friend and the relationship that you have in in being a friend and all that. And so it is, I mean, it's, you know, I find even as a Christian, sometimes with my non-Christian friends, I have to put that out there. And they're the ones that are like, oh, we don't, we don't like that about you. (laughs) You know, it's kind of like one of those things. And it's just like, okay, well, let's have the conversation there around that. And so, um, but they still affirm me, you know, they just disagree with me, but they still appreciate our friendship. And so uh, there's just so much practical advice in there. So I appreciate that, Wendy. Thank you. Thank you. All right, folks. Well, that is it for this week's show. Uh, we do want to hear from you. So write to us at editor at boundless.org, maybe with a question that you have for a future show that we can get to. Or uh, if you have something maybe right now that you're like, hey, I wonder if they've talked 
talked about this. Hop over to boundless.org and you can search there and see if we've answered your question in the past and kind of go from there. Use it as a springboard to see what else we have to offer. Okay, I will see you around next week. I'm Lisa Anderson for The Boundless Show. The Boundless Show is a production of boundless.org. Focus on the family. 